Hi there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Purgatorio. We're at Canto 5. We're coming toward the back. We're going to be at lines 85 through 129, a longish speech. If you remember, a frenzied rush of souls have come up to Dante and Virgil on the first minor ledge of the mountain of purgatory. One of those souls, Jacopo del Cassero, has already spoken and told the story of his death. Now, the second soul, and perhaps a more shocking soul, will tell the story of his death. So let's get to it. This is my English translation, lines 85 through 129 of Canto 5 of Purgatorio. It's great if you want to read along to go to my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can find this translation there, print it off, you can make notes on it, or you can drop a comment and continue the conversation about this episode or about Dante in general with me. I would very much like that. Otherwise, Purgatorio, Canto 5, lines 85 through 129. Then another one said, hey, so that your desire to haul yourself up to the heights of this mountain may be fulfilled... Help mine because of beneficent pity. I am from Montefeltro. I am Buonconte. Neither Giovanna nor anyone else gives a hoot about me. That's why I go among these with my forehead bent low. And I to him, What force or accident pushed you so far away from Campaldino that your grave was never discovered? Oh, he replied, a stream called the Acciano crosses the foot of the Casentino. That stream is born in the Apennines above the Hermitage. Just at the spot where its demarcation becomes meaningless, I arrived with a gash in my throat. I was fleeing on foot, but bleeding out across the plain. That's where I lost my sight and my words. I met my end on Mary's name. And that's where I fell. All that remained of me was my flesh. I'll tell the truth, and you repeat it among the living. The angel of God gathered me up, yet one from hell cried out, Hey, you from heaven, how come you rob me? You cart off the eternal part of this guy because of one little teardrop he's yanked away from me. But I'll do with the rest of him as I see fit. You certainly know how damp vapors condense into water as they rise up to where the cold can gather them together. That evil will combine with its intellect to search for how to do more evil. It moved the mists and winds by means of its natural powers so that when the day was over, he dispersed a fog into that valley that goes from Platamagno up to the mountain chain. A fog so dense that the pregnant air was morphed into water. The rain fell and the ditches got all of it that the ground couldn't absorb. They joined forces into rushing torrents that sluiced down into the valley with such force that nothing could hold them back. My frozen body was found right at the mouth of the rushing Archiano, which swept it along into the Arno, pulling the cross off my chest that I'd made with my arms when pain had conquered me. The river rolled me along its bank and its bottom, then covered and buried me in its debris. We want to talk about who this is because this 
person's father has already been met by us. We met him in Inferno, and his dad's burning up down there. Well, he is kind of burning up, actually, down there. We'll talk about that and who this is. We want to talk about the passage itself because it resonates with the former speech by Jacopo del Casero, and we want to talk through some of this bit about the science of vapors and all the Virgilian references that sit behind this passage. A busy episode in this podcast, so we might as well set to. This is Buonconte da Montefeltro, and we have already met his father, Guido da Montefeltro, in Inferno, Canto 27. In fact, Guido's speech takes up almost all of Inferno 27. And to remind you, Guido is caught in a little tongue of fire, a flame of fire, just as Ulysses and Diomedes were. Guido comes rushing up to the Pilgrim Dante and Virgil, just as Ulysses has finished. Guido speaks mostly to the pilgrim because, of course, as we know, Virgil wants to take over with Ulysses. And Guido tells this tale of doing bad deeds for the Pope, but repenting at the last minute and taking to orders, but it didn't really take. And when Guido dies... Francis comes for his soul, and a demon says, not so fast. They struggle a bit, and the demon grabs Guido and pulls him down to hell. That story is reversed here with Buonconte's account, in which his soul is saved by an angel, while a demon is just left with the shell, with the body, and disposes of it in a particularly despicable and difficult way. So let's talk just a moment about Buonconte da Montefeltro, the son of Guido de Montefeltro. He is a Ghibelline, which means he is Dante's enemy. In fact, at major points during Dante's political and military life, Buonconte is definitely on the opposite side from Dante, to say the least. Buonconte is a Ghibelline, as I said, and he led the revolt of the Ghibellines in Arezzo in 1287 that expelled the Guelphs. Remember the Guelphs, or Guelphs, depending on how you pronounce it. The Guelphs are Dante's party. Buonconte is part of this uh, militaristic uprising that expels the Guelphs from Arezzo. And then in 1288, Buonconte was actually one of the military leaders that led the Ghibellines of Arezzo to defeat Siena. That defeat in 1288 Common Era is what set up the coming bloodbath of the Battle of Campaldino, and that's where we think Dante was. We have some evidence to suggest that Dante was at the Battle of Campaldino in 1289, and that's when the Guelphs defeated the Ghibellines, and that battle on the Ghibelline side was partially led by Buonconte da Montefeltro, and he was indeed killed in that battle. If Jacopo del Casero was on Dante's side, this would have been somebody who's on the other side. Now, could Dante have known Buonconte da Montefeltro? He certainly could have known about him, and perhaps he saw him from afar if Dante was indeed at the Battle of Campaldino. He would have seen a military leader in charge. They couldn't have had a personal relationship of any kind. Putting Buonconte here is a great act of forgiveness on Dante's part. Remember that these souls claim they died violently, and this 
is certainly another violent death. And that because of that, they're kind of here without last rites, without extreme unction, without a last confession. They're here, but they died repenting and forgiving. Well, I don't know how much Buonconte da Montefeltro forgives in this passage. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we can certainly say that by putting him here, Dante is forgiving him because he's putting him in purgatorio on the way to paradise. Let's look at the passage specifically and see some of the interesting issues inside of it. Buonconte starts, hey. You know, I should just stop and say, you notice how many of these souls in the fifth canto say, hey, 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 hey. There's always has hey. It indicates that they're in a rush. It indicates that they're trying to grab attention, that they're fighting for attention because there's a frenzied crowd of them. It's just interesting that hey comes up so much. So again, hey, so that your desire, you, you the pilgrim's desire to haul yourself up to the heights of this mountain may be fulfilled, help mine out because of beneficent pity. Dante's enemy is asking Dante for pity. Does Buonconte da Montefeltro know this is Dante who would have been a Guelph when the Ghibellines were so defeated? Probably not. If Dante knew of Buonconte da Montefeltro and saw him from afar in a military battle, there's no way that Buonconte would have paid any attention to Dante. So there's no way that Buonconte would know Dante. We might be able to claim that he can know him through some kind of divine prescience in the afterlife, but we're reaching outside the text to think that. All he knows is that this guy in the body is heading up the mountain and may get back to the world of the living where he may be able to pray for Buonconte. So we have an interesting ironic inversion. It's a question of how deep that irony runs, but this is the truth. There is a positive and a negative here. First of all, Buonconte says, I came from Montefeltro, I am Buonconte. This shows a bit of humility on his part because the verb is in the past tense. I came from or I was from Montefeltro. Montefeltro is a great house. So it's like saying, you know, I come from <laughs> the house of the Windsors. I, I came from the house of the Windsors in the past tense. But putting that in the past, then the next phrase, I am Buonconte, is in the present. And that shows a little bit of humility, as if the great house stuff is over and done. And in fact, it's in a past that means even the results from the past are over and done. But he names himself in the present tense. So now he is alone without his landed titled estates, without his great claim to family heritage. It's a bit of humility on his part. And then the next part sets up something that's a little more negative. He says, neither Giovanna nor anyone else gives a hoot about me. That's why I go among these with my forehead bent low. This claim that Giovanna, this woman back amongst the living, is not paying attention to them, is now becoming a repeated refrain in Purgatorio. Manfred brought it up with Constance, that if Dante ever gets back to the land of the living, make sure Constance prays for me. Balacqua didn't bring up a woman, but Balacqua said, nobody is praying for me. And now here we have Buonconte complaining about Giovanna, and she's not praying for me. She didn't even care about me anymore. 
So that's why I'm going along with my forehead bent low. Let me just say that this is building toward a passage of excessive misogyny ahead of us. It is lying not in this Canto 5, but in Cantos ahead of us. This misogyny is going to start to build until it comes to really a disturbing head on down the road. Then he does this repeatedly. Remember, he lays the stones of a path as we walk it. And it seems as if the complaints against Constance and the complaints against Giovanna are building toward this moment ahead of us. The closest we come to a truly misogynistic passage in comedy. So it's a little bit disturbing. They're going to color this in the next and last bit of Canto 5, of course, with the last speaker that it's going to color this misogynistic build that's going on. But I just want to point it out. The complaint that women are not faithful, that they're not keeping their vows and not praying for me. I'm such a great guy and these women are leaving me abandoned. There's no reason we need to turn away from it. We don't have to make Dante a saint. At least I don't. We don't have to make Dante better than he is. He's got problems and he's got <laughs> dare I say female problems. So he's got problems and um it's building yeah so let's pass on in the passage Dante says I to him to Buonconte what force or accident so he's talking violence or chance by what violence or by what chance pushed you so far away from Campaldino where you died that your grave was never discovered this seems a ham-handed question from the poet Dante because this question is designed to set up the story we can feel the gears of the plot lurch a little bit like crank because here we're going to get the big story of the body and Dante has been more elegant in the ways that stories have been presented in the past, let's say with Pierre de la Vigne or Brunetto Latini, he's been more elegant at evoking the stories out of other characters. This is really a crank of the gears. We hear it lurch because this is what leads to the story. But at the same time, this may be part of the forgiveness on Dante's part. After all, he is interested in what happened. Okay, you fell at Campaldino on the other side of the battle from me, but what happened to your body? And why was it never found? Dante is showing some compassion for this former enemy. Buonconte replies, oh, a stream called the Archiano crosses the foot of the Casentino. That stream is born in the Apennines, the ridge of mountains, above the Hermitage of Monastery. There's this stream. It's coming down the Casentino. Uh, it's the Archiano. And he says it comes to the spot where it loses its demarcation. Its demarcation becomes meaningless. That's where it enters the Arno. So when the Archiano hits the Arno, it's no longer called the Arno. Archiano, like yeah, when the Missouri River hits the Mississippi, the Missouri River, quote unquote, disappears and it all just becomes the Mississippi. I arrive with a gash in my throat. So he's come already battle scarred to this place. I was fleeing on foot, but bleeding out across the plain. And you should know that this line is really, again, very poetic in the medieval Florentine. It's beautifully said. It's 
balanced. It's kind of a perfect line, fleeing on foot, but bleeding it out across the plane. It's disturbing. You can see it happening. He says, that's where I lost my sight and my words. I met my end with Mary's name. So the last thing he said was something to the Virgin Mary, if not just calling out her name. That's where I fell. All that remained of me was my flesh. Let's just stop there. We have two questions. One, Mary's name was clearly enough to get him into purgatory. This is the beginning, and we are with Dante here at the beginning of the great veneration of Mary. Mary is becoming more and more in the Middle Ages capable of forgiving sins, of intervening in this world. She is for the church fathers, but not to the level of the veneration of Mary. We can see this in the building of the great Gothic churches, Notre Dame in Paris, these great churches to the Virgin from the Middle Ages. The veneration of Mary is truly happening around Dante and during his time, and in fact, comes into full flower about a hundred years after Dante. But we can see a note of it here, that he dies not with Jesus's name on his lips or not with God's name on his lips, but with Mary's name on his lips. It's a poignant, maternal, redemptive moment. This is all happening because of Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux begins the great veneration of Mary, and we'll talk much Oh, gosh, much more about Bernard of Clairvaux when we hit Paradiso. But Bernard of Clairvaux is the great, uh, what I want to say, promoter of Mary in the Catholic faith. They all say they died repenting and forgiving. And we have a little hint of Jacopo and how he forgave. Because what Jacopo says, if you remember, is that the man from Este, that is Azzo the Eighth, the man from Este shouldn't have been quite so mad at me. And this leads us to believe that Jacopo may have forgiven Azzo the Eighth because he had cause to be mad at Jacopo, but just not quite so mad as to have him murdered. In this speech from Juan Conte, we don't really catch any place where he forgave anyone. In fact, he seems to be complaining about Giovanna. The complaint seems to be lost in the larger scientific and theological battles ahead. So let's get to them. Juan Conte says, I'll tell you the truth, and you repeat it among the living. And now he's going to tell the story of the fight for his soul and his body and the demon washing his body away. But let's just stop here. This is all about truth claims in Dante's writing of the comedy. We want to say a couple things about this. Most of this comes from Tedo da Linda Barolini's great points about Dante and the comedy, and she is the great master of this notion of how does Dante develop veracity inside of his poem. One of the ways he does is that at very strange moments, Dante seems to foreground the problem that you might find this too much. You might find this way too much to take in, and so Dante will say, for example, at the appearance of Garion, I swear on my book called The Comedy that I really did see this. As if this is something really crazy, something that may stretch credulity very far. As if, <laughs> as if seeing Dido floating around on the wind doesn't stretch credulity. As if seeing Capanea stretched out on the sands doesn't stretch credulity. <laughs> 
<laughs> as, if, as if seeing flatterers sunk up in human excrement isn't stretching credulity, as if seeing souls on an ice sheet isn't stretching credulity. And yet Dante seems at certain moments to think, oh my gosh, I must be stepping over a line. And so he comes out with phrases like this, I'll tell the truth. Why haven't you been already? I'll tell the truth and you repeat it among the living as if what you're going to hear here is beyond compare. Now, I want to say something about this. What is it that you're going to hear here that is beyond compare? It is not that a demon and an angel fought over Buonconte's body and soul. There are dozens of medieval stories of exactly this kind of thing happened. And while the reverse happened to Guido de Montefeltro and the demon won, here, in fact, it's the other way around. But that doesn't stretch any credulity. There are street plays where this happens. The, the medieval folklore is full of this stuff. This can't stretch credulity. This isn't it. Well, then is it the water vapors and the way the vapors condense and create? No, that's out of Aristotle. And as we'll talk about in a minute, out of Virgil's Georgics, that's quote unquote established science. So that's not going to do it. What is it that is so hard to believe? It's Buonconte's salvation. He shouldn't be saved by an angel because, A, his father is damned. And we know in the Middle Ages, the idea is that the sins of the father are visited on the children. And B, he's a Ghibelline and he's he's against Dante's side. And Dante is, in fact, giving this guy a lot of creds here. Now, let's say Dante is also the guest of Ghibelline warlords like Can Grande. <laughs> so he is on the run and protected by some Ghibelline forces. So to give the Ghibellines the benefit of the doubt serves Dante's, shall we say, dinner purposes and serves his bedroom purposes. But we don't even have to get that nefarious. We could say that Dante, by being taken in by Ghibelline warlords, has learned that the conflict between Gelfs and Ghibellines isn't as world-changing as he once believed it was. That's what's surprising, is that a Ghibelline who fought against the Gelfs is saved. Not the fact that demons and angels fight over his body and his soul, and not the fact that water vapors rise. Let's talk about all that. Buonconte dies, and he says, The angel of God gathered me up, yet one from hell. Oh, a demon. A demon in Purgatorio. Just stop. A demon in Purgatorio. We just got a glimpse of one. This seems a little bit off-putting, right? One from hell cried out, Hey, you from heaven, how come you rob me? You cart off the eternal part of this guy because of a one little teardrop he's yanked away from me. Now, this is the typical complaint. He repented right at the end. I mean, come on. And we know that his father took orders right at the end in order to redeem himself. So you mean the father gets damned, but this guy gets saved just because he said Mary's name and maybe cried a little right at his death? Come on, give me a break on this. But in fact, this is good to mystic theology. A final tear can save you which is problematic because, again, you're being uh, assured your salvation 
outside of the dictates and power of the church, but by your own individual reaction. Okay, so that demon says, I'll do with the rest of him as I see fit. Again, just pause there and think for a minute. Wait, we got demonic speech in Purgatorio. This is weird stuff. You certainly know, Juan Conte goes on, how damp vapors can dense into water as they rise up to where the cold can gather them. The evil will combined with its intellect to search for how to do more evil. It moved the mists and winds by means of its natural powers. And again, this is standard theology that angels and demons have the ability to control weather on earth. So that when the day was over, he dispersed a fog into that valley that goes from Pratamano up to the mountain chain, the Apennines, a fog so dense that the pregnant air was morphed into water the rain fell and ditches got all of it that the ground couldn't absorb. Two points here. One, much of this passage is from Virgil. It's from the Georgics, book one, lines 322 through 324, and then further on, lines 324 through 327, when he says how damp vapors condense into water as they rise so the cold can gather them together, that's that first bit of the Georgics, and then later, that bit that the pregnant air morphs into water, those columns of humid air morph into water and fall down as rain, and sometimes it falls as really heavy torrents, that's the latter passage in the Georgics. Georgics. We should just think that by using the Georgics in this passage, Buenconte is actually tying this passage back to the beginning of it all. Remember that bit about meteors blazing through the August haze? That's how the frenzied souls run up to them. And I said that was a reference to a passage in the Georgics. Well, this is tying back to that. So we're getting this very elegant way in which Canto V is folding on itself. References to Georgics earlier on are finding themselves here. But more importantly than that, this is a node, a piece of what's going to happen in comedy. It's put in Buonconte's mouth, but this is the beginning, not the first start, but starting the beginning of the changing of comedy from merely a walk across the universe. It's always going to stay that. And I know merely it's ridiculous walking across the universe. So merely a walk across the universe and into an encyclopedia of medieval knowledge. This description of how weather patterns work, part of a common science accepted in the Middle Ages, mostly from Aristotle, but from others as well who are picking it up from Aristotle. And Dante is setting it into his text because comedy is going to start to become more an encyclopedia of medieval knowledge ahead of us. Discussions of embryology, discussions of spots on the moon, discussions of how the heavens move. So much of medieval physics, biology, botany <laughs> and literary theory lie ahead of us. Because of that, we can start to see a changing notion in comedy from a narrative of a soul-seeking piece by walking across the universe to that plus a compendium, an encyclopedia of what is known. This will 
follow out through comedy and, in fact, follow out through European culture. This will flourish later after the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, in which we have dozens of writers attempting to write multi-volume works that are the sum of all knowledge. Aquinas says this with the Summa Theologica. Obviously, he's trying to sum up all of theology, but... In fact, that move is going to become more and more grandiose, and we could argue that Dante is part of that trend as he begins to include more and more scientific knowledge inside of his text. Buoncante's story is also interesting because two more things happen. The waters all come up, they coalesce, his body is rushed down by the growing force of the Archeano in the Arno and then covered up. Here's why it's interesting. So you don't have to be buried in sacred ground to be saved. That's one point. And the second point is that Dante gives the much more learned speech to Buonconte, his former enemy. This is a speech that uses Aristotle, that talks about the science of weather, that quotes the Georgics. This is a way more elaborate and learned speech than Jacopo's was, the one right before it, Dante's allies' speech. So it's an interesting way that Dante continues to forgive Buonconte, to give him a place of position? Is this because Dante is being safeguarded by Ghibelline warlords? Maybe. Is this because Dante himself is forgiving the Guelph-Ghibelline conflict? Maybe. Is this because Dante wants us to see that the universal movement is far beyond local political strife? Maybe. <laughs> I say maybe because of the canto that lies ahead of us. Maybe not, but maybe. Maybe Dante's fighting it within himself. Because, let me just say, and I don't want to push too far into the canto ahead of us, but let me just say that when we get out beyond Canto 5, we're going to hit some really rough passages about Florence and about Florence's corruption, which seems to be that Dante is back in the old mode of Florence is this horrible cesspit. So maybe there's a conflict going on in, in Dante. He wants to overcome these conflicts with figures like Juan Conte, but at the same time, he feels himself dragged back. He is in exile because of politics in Florence. He feels himself dragged back to what he knows, which is that the divine plan is not above local politics. Interesting tension inside the text. Not one that I can answer fully, just one I can fully bring to your attention. We've already gone on a long time, but let's talk about four ways that this speech calls back to Jacopo del Casero's speech. One, both of these figures are at the Battle of Campaldino on opposite sides. So Campaldino links the two of them. Jacopo survives the Battle of Campaldino and goes on to a rather illustrious political career until he's done in by Azzo VIII on his way to become the Podesta of Molano. Clearly, we can see their parallel stories. Both of these figures meet extremely bloody deaths. Remember, Jacopo, I saw my blood make a lake on the ground. These are gross, bloody deaths. And there's something that's interesting that's going on here. Notice that purgatory is getting quite hellish. There's a little bit of, uh, shall we say, the smell of sulfur about both Jacopo and Buonconte's stories. They're bloody, 
they're awful. True, they're saved. In the end, they make it to the good part of the afterlife, but they seem a little hellish in their telling. I'm not suggesting that they are from hell, but I am suggesting that they seem discontiguous with the larger redeemed landscape of purgatory. And this may be a piece of ante-purgatory, of the parts of purgatorio before the gate of purgatory. After all, Manfred also met a violent and awful death. We have this hellish undertone that's going on here, and that's an interesting little uh, tweak on Purgatorio itself. Both Jacopo and Buonconte are very much involved with Italian geography. I brought this up in the last episode of the podcast, and I want to bring it up again. These are very heavily Italian stories full of geographical markers of the Italian landscape. So we're clearly building out to something about Italy as a whole. We're getting to it. Trust me. We talked about that in the last episode of the podcast and how Ante Purgatory may be a metaphor for Italy itself in Dante's day. Maybe. Here is the fourth and most important way. Both of these passages refer back to Inferno. Jacopo talks about falling in the land of the Antonori. Padua, but still and nonetheless Antonori, which calls us back to a certain section of Inferno, a section in which those who have been traitorous against their country or their political party are punished. That calls us back. This calls us back to Inferno because this is the son of a major figure from Inferno who gets almost an entire canto to give his life story and what happened to him. Let me just push this one step. There is a way in which these parts of Purgatorio are making up for some problems in Inferno. Cato makes up for the problems in Limbo. I think he's there to say, well, maybe I didn't need to put every learned figure in hell. And the story of Guido de Montefeltro's death in Inferno Inferno is extremely problematic. Did Francis not know that Guido was damned? Somehow was Francis the great saint confused? And so he came for Guido's soul and the devil grabbed it and Francis was bested? The theological problems there are immense to say the least. You have got you have got the good bested by the evil. You also have apparently the good ignorant of the ultimate fate of souls. This doesn't make any sense. This story rectifies the theological problems in that story. There are many ways in which the mistakes, do I, dare I say it, the errors, the problems in Inferno are fixed. The problem with Frederick is fixed. There he is in the tomb with Fernata. And yet, here's his son, Manfred, in the afterlife. I think that Dante feels much more akin to Frederick's learning and Frederick's court. He pulls back a little bit from saying, oh, man, maybe it isn't so bad. And we get Manfred here. I think there is a way, especially in the early cantos of, I'm going to say chapters, but okay, chapters. The early chapters of Purgatorio, the early cantos of Purgatorio, there's a way in which Inferno is being manipulated, fixed. There's a lot of words you can use here. Glossed over, paved over, varnished, corrected, clarified, but I still think it's important to put it some way because it is what's happening here. 
This podcast episode has gone on a long time, so I'm not going to read Juan Conte's speech again. Instead, I'm going to save it for the next episode, and I'm going to read all three speeches, Jacopo, Juan Conte, and the last figure in the canto, all together at the end of the next episode of the podcast. To get there, you have to subscribe to this podcast, rate it like it, do all those things if you know what to do. Do all those things that you need to do. Let me also say that early on in this podcast, I claimed you could find me on Twitter. I have now left, as it is now called X, I have now officially left X. So I am no longer there. Connect with me instead on Instagram. Lots of people have connected with me there. Or, of course, you can always continue talking to me on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com about any of these episodes. Thanks for being on the journey with me, and I look forward to the mind-boggling final voice of Canto V of Purgatorio in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.